Welcome to CLASS, an official podcast of the National Political Education Committee of the Democratic Socialists of America, discussing the organization's political education curriculum and more. My name is Elton L.K. This episode is a part of a series called What is Capitalism? We're going to be discussing from hashtag Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation by Kianga Yamada-Taylor. Let's get right into it. Welcome to this episode of the DSA National Political Education Podcast. My name is Stefana Tier and I will be your host. This is the fourth and final episode of a series accompanying our curriculum packet on the question of what is capitalism? You can find our curriculum on our website, education.dsausa.org, under the Resources tab. We're joined today again by sociologists Sanjeev Gupta and economics professor David Kotz, who both teach at UMass Amherst. In this episode, we'll focus on a small excerpt from Kianga Yamada-Taylor's seminal book, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. The book was written at the height of the first Black Lives Matter rebellion in 2014, and was meant as both a historical record and an analysis that attempted to thread the needle between race and class. Today, we'll try to talk about the intersection of those two things and ways in which capitalism has been shaped by racism and racism by capitalism. And we'll also talk about the ways that the Black Liberation Movement and the Socialist Movement connect and fuel each other. Let's start with, what does Taylor argue? Does capitalism rely on racism? Or how does capitalism fuel racism? And can you have capitalism without racism? Would there be racism without capitalism? So of all the questions we've dealt with so far, uh, you know, I'll say at the outset that uh, these are the ones that I would say my understanding is really evolving, uh, you know, in, in pretty much real time, I actually changed my mind while reading this piece, uh, you know, just to prepare for this about a couple of things. And I think that's a question that DSA obviously is dealing with. Uh, and so I invite listeners to sort of really think of this as just a chance to think aloud. Um, so what is Taylor's argument? So Taylor says two things. One is that capitalism in the U.S., used racism as a mechanism to justify slavery, or more precisely, slavery in the U.S. uh, relied on racism, on racializing the skin color, again, to, to use the body as the focus here. And capitalism was happy to use the profits from the cotton trade to develop industry in the North. So, yes, Taylor says that capitalism used racism in that sense in the origins in the U.S. And then also subsequently to divide and conquer the working class, to keep workers fighting among themselves on the basis of race. Now, where it gets complicated for me is that, as Taylor says in the same excerpt, it is actually the industrial north 
that then turns on the slaveocracy to the point of basically uh, fighting uh, the most violent war in U.S. history to that point. And Taylor quotes Marx, and I'll add another quote there that, uh, you know, Marx says in a piece he wrote for the New York Tribune, that the civil war in the U.S. is a war between two systems of labor, the system of slave labor and of free wage labor. And he says, these two systems cannot coexist on the same continent. One of them has to go. So this is the, the paradox here that at some point, the capitalists, if, if we call them that uh, in the North, really decided that slavery as a system had to go. And, you know, I think most of us will be glad that they did. Uh, it's hard to see slavery disappearing uh, in the U.S. Uh, without that. So I think that is the sort of a little bit of a complication which is worth thinking about. Now, the other piece of this, that capitalists use racism to divide workers. Yes, so as late as in the auto plants in the 60s, if you've read the book Detroit, I Mind Dying, for example, racism was used and exploited as a way to keep workers from uniting around their common interests. Uh, the most extreme case of this, you know, you could go to South Africa under apartheid, where white workers were explicitly given benefits, including allowed to unionize in, in some cases, with the understanding that they would be much better off than the black majority in, uh, in South Africa. Now, again, let's complicate the, the story. At some point, capitalists can actually decide that racism of that sort, of that crude sort, is not in their interest. And both in the U.S. and South Africa, apparently, they did. And uh, in the U.S., you know, the civil rights movement, of course, the credit goes here to the mass movement, but a bunch of elites actually decided that you know, this stuff was really backward and was actually impeding the development of capitalism. By the way, I think the same is true of the BLM support among uh, big companies now. I actually don't think it was purely cosmetic or opportunistic. I think it reflected something real that a section of the most advanced capitalists in tech and finance actually have grasped this, that the more egregious kinds of racial discrimination is actually now just an impediment. I don't think they want to use it in the older way of dividing workers. I think it served its purpose. So all that is to say is that we should give some credit to capitalists for being not so much racist or just using racism to further their interests, but being really exceptionally good at acting on their interests at the moment, you know, in a particular time and place. And that can involve actually turning against racism. So that is my, I don't think that's a disagreement with what Taylor is saying in this excerpt, but I think it's a little bit of a counterpoint to how she frames the role of capitalism in slavery and then uh, subsequently. Can you have racism without capitalism? I think this is also a time and place question. And, and here I think the work of actual historians matters. You know, we shouldn't just treat this as a theoretical or analytical question or even one of pure strategy. I think we should take the actual history here seriously. And I think that the record is a, is a little mixed. I'll just say one thing about, you know, so there's racism based on skin color. If you expand the definition a little bit, to include caste discrimination and say anti-Semitism, then of course there's no shortage of examples where these things existed 
and in sometimes really brutal form well before capitalism in Europe and elsewhere. And I understand that's not the same as racism per se, but there are forms of oppression that are not strictly about class uh, that precede capitalism and arguably took on much more rabid forms. They didn't need capitalism to be truly, truly destructive. Sanjay raised a very good point about the evidence that some uh, large capitalist uh, enterprises have seemed to have taken a position uh, critical of racism. After all, it was uh, what caused former President Trump's business advisory councils to disband was when Trump praised the white supremacists in Charlottesville. And the CEOs who were on those councils you know, one of them was African-American. There were some women that played a leading role. They disbanded in response. But that's only part of the story. The biggest corporations that have some monopoly power, maybe they sell a lot to African-American community. Perhaps they even have some uh, African-Americans and Latinos in uh, management. These days will take actions and adopt policies that are critical of old-style racism. But if you look at capitalism as a whole, the divide and conquer is still there. Uh, it was interesting that in the uh, build-up to the financial crisis of 2008, it turned out that the biggest banks were pushing subprime mortgages, which means more home mortgages at very high interest rates, specifically at Black people. They even had a, a name for them, which essentially meant in cleaned up language, you know, black people's mortgages, uh, because uh, they could do it. And this is another side of it. The capitalism promotes racism, not just because uh, it divides the working class, but because an oppressed minority can be super exploited in certain ways. They can be forced to take jobs at lower wages, and they can be pressured into accepting mortgages at extra high interest rates because they don't have alternatives because of their race. There are other ways that sort of structurally racism serves capitalism. It is still the case that Blacks and Latinos have a higher unemployment rate than whites. That means that those groups serve as a kind of a reserve labor force that can be drawn in when the economy is operating at a particularly high rate of economic growth. So I think they're still tied in with each other. It's not a question, in my view, of whether you could imagine a capitalism without racism. Well, there are examples. You know, capitalism did develop in Japan in the 19th century in a very homogeneous population. It developed in Sweden with a very homogeneous population. But if there are distinguishable racial or ethnic groups and capitalism drive to divide the working class, takes over and strengthens racism, in my view. There is basically an expanding market. The demographics of both people in the workforce, but also consumers, which, I mean, there's an overlap there. And then transnationally, you know, as companies are basically, you know, wanting to establish themselves everywhere, uh, there's actually a built-in limit to how much you can think that, or at least say uh, that people who look a certain way are inferior if you 
also want to, you know, work with them and, uh, you know, sell them stuff. Uh, and I think that's a real thing. I also think we should take credit for some of this. That is, it's not happening by itself. It's happening because of the success of the mass movements and the sort of various working class movements that have forced people, including, and, you know, I will also say, I mean, I teach, as probably David does, some of these young people who are going to end up you know, they're white, uh, they're going to end up in companies and so on. And honestly, they're far more advanced on questions of race than most of us from a generation ago, however well-educated we are. It just comes, they're just much more woke in the best sense of the term. And so I think there is that as well, that the people themselves have changed. I mean, yes, they're capitalists, but they're capitalists living now. And in fact, the mentality can change because, you know, the change has been forced. And that's a good thing. So in this excerpt, Taylor quotes CLR James at length. What is CLR James arguing when he says that the anti-racist movement has a vitality of its own? but that it can intervene as a powerful force in the revolutionary movement. And what does that mean for how we organize? Okay, that's a very good question. In earlier uh, American history, some socialist organizations in the early 20th century thought that socialists should only organize based on class and should ignore other issues such as race or gender. But uh, CLR James does make a very good point that that is a bad strategy. In the U.S., Black people face a particularly harsh exploitation and oppression in U.S. capitalism. Black workers, on the average, are more uh, favorable toward unionization and collective struggle, uh, and they often play a leading role in class struggle. The way to there is not a conflict between class struggle and fighting against racial oppression. They go together and they can be worked on together. So I think it's right that the the socialists, socialists should aim to organize the entire working class while upholding the struggle for the rights of black people, explaining to white working people that it is in their interests to overcome racial oppression and arguing for unity of the multiracial working class Uh, while also fighting to end the particular oppression of various racial and ethnic minorities. In this quote, which I'll just, I'll read the first sentence, he says, we say, number one, that the independent Negro struggle has a vitality and a validity of its own. And that really struck me here, the claim that this is a valid struggle, whatever its relationship or not with the questions of, uh, you know, socialism and class. And I actually think this is something that we want to keep in mind now as we figure out as socialists and DSA uh, that I think the time is past for us to continuously revisit sort of, you know, is this as important? How should we be involved in it and so on? It doesn't matter really what we think about this. I think this is what CLR James is saying. This struggle for democratic rights, you know, whatever they are, however limited they are, but full democratic rights 
prevailing at the moment has a validity of its own, and it's our job to support this. Now, operationally, there is it raises this tough question. Well, how do you how do we do this as socialists? How do we distinguish ourselves from anti-racist uh, activism in general? Those are important questions, but I actually think the starting point should be maybe it doesn't matter so much that we figure this out before we go in, but that we simply do it wholeheartedly because it is something worth doing in and of itself. Um, and socialists historically, as Taylor points out, have in fact done that to our credit. Take two summers ago with Black Lives Matter. I mean, who was prepared for this kind of upsurgence, which still I would say is bigger than the, you know, we talk about the labor resurgence today, uh, which I think is actually a little mixed and maybe not as widespread as we think it is. In the last 10 years, that was the biggest outpouring of popular political energy in this country was Black Lives Matter or the, gender, not the organization, but the, generally the, the movement against police brutality and, and all the other issues it raised. And I think this is a question for us as socialists. That has a life and a validity absolutely all its own. And our job is to figure out how we can contribute as socialists to it. It is able to exercise a powerful influence upon the revolutionary proletariat. Yeah, I think if we don't figure this out, we can't do socialism in the U.S., I hope this series has been helpful for people trying to learn about what capitalism is, how it works, or how it doesn't. The constant tension between the classes, the drive for profits over human need and the needs of our environment. This concludes the What is Capitalism series. Look out for our next mini-series, which will be on What is Democratic Socialism? This series was brought to you by the National Political Education Committee. I want to thank... Sanjeev Gupta and David Kotz for speaking with us in this series. I'm Defna Tir, and I was your host. It was a pleasure to be here with you all. Until next time. 